What is something that you were looking forward to or you remember being really excited about and you were literally counting down the days? Well, we just had Christmas this past week. And some of you were longing for that day for weeks or even months, and it's come and gone. If you're looking forward to next Christmas, you've got a while to wait. Maybe it's your birthday you're looking forward to where you can finally get a day that's all for you. Maybe it's that vacation where you can head to your hometown and reunite with your friends and family. Or for our introverts here who just like to travel by themselves, you're just longing to get away from everyone. Maybe it's getting married or having a baby. On the other hand, we can have times that we're looking forward to with great fear and anxiety. I was thinking uh, back on this when I was in the seventh grade, I had a music class and the final assignment was you had to sing a solo in front of the whole class. And the song I had to sing was from the musical Annie, uh, Tomorrow. I'm not gonna sing that for you now, but this was terrifying. I was a seventh grader, seventh grade boy going through puberty. Uh, I was dreading this day more than anything and plotting some way to get out of it. I couldn't figure out a way to get out of it. The day came and I survived, uh, but the anticipation of looking forward to that day has scarred me for life. For many of you here, students and teachers, you're, you're not looking forward to going back to school in a couple days and you're wondering where did the vacation time go? And you're dreading uh, going back and you're trying to figure out some way that you can get more vacation time. Or for those of you that are just working normal jobs, you're dreading going back to work on Tuesday where you have to encounter your boss who's going to yell at you. Or maybe it's that family reunion that you have to go to and spend time with that weird uncle. Or maybe it's something even more serious. If you're in the army and you have to go to battle and even face possible death, these are all things that obviously vary in different ways. But this morning, we want to think about what is the most important thing to be anticipating the return of Christ. Some of you may be excited about it. Some of you may be dreading it. Some of you may never really even think about it. But we're going to be looking about the return of Christ today and think more about it as we look at the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a type of apocalyptic literature. Since the book is apocalyptic in nature, it is best not to read the book literally but symbolically. The challenging aspect is discerning what the events are describing, what they're symbolizing. One of the most helpful ways to understand the book better is to know and be familiar with the Old Testament. There are many references and allusions throughout from the Old Testament that can greatly help us understand the book and the meaning more accurately. Even though there are many difficult parts to the book, the overall meaning is not hard to understand. Sometimes we can be intimidated by the book. It's authored by the Apostle John to the seven churches in Asia that are now uh, modern-day Western Turkey. Even though John is writing to the seven churches in the first century, his message and revelation is applicable and authoritative for all churches throughout history, including us today at Rack Church on the last day of 2023. Jesus is the one revealing to John 
through an angel things that will happen in the future to warn, encourage, and challenge the churches to remain faithful in their present circumstances. Verse one says, the revelation is given to John to show his servants what must soon take place. Ultimately, Jesus is reminding his people that he will return as the conquering king. This should give believers confidence and joy as they wait for Christ's return. Even though they might face suffering, persecution, and even death, they can press on because their ultimate destiny is secure. Many scholars agree that Revelation was written during the reign of the emperor, Roman emperor Domitian, uh, sometime between 85 and 95 AD. And this emperor was known for persecuting and for killing Christians. We see in this book and many others, New Testament books, that persecutions and sufferings will even increase as the return of Christ comes near. But it is all under the power and authority of God who's presently ruling and reigning and who will return to save his people and judge the wicked. Jesus knows the suffering of his people are experiencing it and he will return one day to rescue them. The verse before our, our passage that we're going to be looking at this morning says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words and hears and keeps the words of this prophecy. This is showing that the words of this book are authoritative and from God himself. If we want the joy and peace that God offers, we should read, hear, and obey the words in the book as we should with all of scripture. So our passage today is from Revelation chapter one, verses four to eight. Um, so you'll be greatly helped to follow along with me as we uh, read that together and go through this passage. Revelation one, verses four to eight. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. So I have two points for us this morning that help us get through this passage. At the return of Christ, the eternal triune God will bring ultimate peace for his people. That's in verses four to six. And then secondly, the eternal triune God will bring ultimate judgment on his enemies in verses seven to eight. So point number one, the eternal triune God will bring ultimate peace for his people. John is bringing a message for God's people from God himself. Just as a prophet would in the Old Testament, They'd often speak God's, to God's people saying, thus says the Lord. As we said earlier, John is an apostle commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. In verse three, John says the words of this book are a prophecy. 
John is functioning as a prophet speaking God's word to God's people. How does God identify himself in the opening of this book? We see, he says, the one who is, who was, and is to come. As we look at the rest of the verse, it's clear that he's talking about God the Father here. This is showing that he presently exists. He existed in eternity past, and he will exist in the future. Why why do you think the Father first identifies himself as the one who is? Well, he's emphasizing that he is presently with and in control of the circumstances and suffering that Christians are going through. They should also, this should also remind us as readers when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3 uh, to deliver the Israelites from slavery. God revealed himself to Moses and Israel as I am. He is the eternal self-existent one. He always has been and he always will be. He simply is. He is the only one who can identify himself in such a way. We are all creatures who were created and are dependent on God for every breath that we take. But God, on the other hand, has always existed, does exist presently, and will exist forevermore. Thinking about this, about this God being eternally self-existent, dependent on nothing, should cause us to walk in humble fear and amazement of who God is. Believing this should strip away our pride. Now, those of you that know me know I love sports, and I love seeing, watching sports and seeing athletes who do amazing things athletically. And then oftentimes, you know, with professional athletes, they like to boast about it afterwards. One of uh, the popular things in basketball these days is when you score a basket and uh, you score on one person or you, you drive it into the uh, close to the basket or dunk the ball or score a layup, and then you gesture down low, showing how weak your opponent is, that they are too small and weak to stop you, and you are too strong and powerful. Now, God has definitely gifted everyone in various ways, and we should seek to use our gifts to bring God glory. And, but how easy it is to start using the gifts that God gives us to bring ourselves glory. It's so easy to take pride in our strengths, whatever they may be, athletic ability, strength, intellect, business savvy, good grades, popularity, whatever it may be, and put others down and elevate ourselves above others. How can we discern in our hearts if we're taking pride in what we do or our achievements? Well, one way would be to think if, if God took away this gift that he's given us, would we be able to trust him or would we get angry and frustrated at him for taking away something that we love? Or do we envy others and are jealous towards others who have maybe what we view as better gifts than we do? We need to hold on to the gifts that God gives us loosely in this life and cling to the Lord. It's really very illogical to take pride in ourselves when we honestly think about who God is. If we believe everything we are and have and are able to do in this life is from God, this should remove all pride, all racism, all ethnocentrism, 
and treating those that are different from us with contempt. Acts 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Next in the verse, we see that this is from this letter is from the seven spirits before the throne. So we had God, the father, then we have the seven spirits before the throne. Seven is an important number in the Bible and particularly in Revelation. It symbolizes perfection and completeness. So we don't want to understand that there are literally seven spirits, but actually this is the perfect spirit of God himself. There are a number of other places in Revelation where the Holy Spirit is identified in the same way. If you look at chapter three, verse one, uh, chapter four, verse five, chapter five, verse six, the Holy Spirit's identified in the same way. We know this is the Holy Spirit also because grace and peace come from him. And grace and peace in the Bible only come from God. Nowhere in the Bible do we see grace and peace coming from an angel or from a person. In all the letters we see, they come from God. Finally, we see Jesus Christ is identified as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. What does it mean that Jesus is the faithful witness? Jesus was faithful and obedient to the father throughout his life, particularly during his earthly ministry. I think from his baptism until his death, he was faithful unto death. Jesus said no to every temptation as a human. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. He had to fight against temptation the same way that we do. It was not like when he was tempted, he just pulled out his divinity and used that to turn away from temptation. Think about his temptation in the wilderness. How did Jesus combat the devil? He used scripture. As a human, Jesus had to grow up and learn the very scripture that he inspired. He had to study and learn and apply the scripture in his life. Jesus was the faithful and obedient witness in his earthly life. And in this way, we are to be faithful witnesses as well. Jesus is our example of living a faithful life before God. So as believers in Christ, let's seek to fight against temptation through the power of the spirit and the word. Seek to know the word and memorize it. What sin do you struggle with? Do you struggle with lust? Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with greed, envy? Well, there's so many scriptures in the word that can help us uh, in, in moments of temptation. So seek to memorize these uh, scriptures and uh, that can help us in moments of temptation. Even think about as, as we're going into the new year, have a plan to, to go through the Bible. This, this is uh, what we should, God has given us to seek to know him more and to fight against our sin. It should be such an encouragement to us as Christians that the same way Jesus turned away from sin in his life is the same way that we can do as well. We should also seek to have accountability within the church to help us fight against sin. 
If you're a member of this church, I want to encourage you to seek out another member of this church to help you fight against sin and temptation. We should have relationships that are open and honest. This should be uh, normal in the life of the church. So I encourage you to, to seek that out. We see Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over all the kings. A number of times throughout the Bible, Jesus is said to be the firstborn from the dead. We see in Colossians 1.18, Hebrews 1.16. This does not mean that Jesus was a created being. He's always existed. He is eternally God. Jesus is fully God. And when he's born, he becomes human, but he doesn't lose his divinity. He's 100% God and 100% human. But the firstborn from the dead is not actually talking about him being born as a human. It's talking about Jesus' rank or status. The firstborn in the Old Testament would get double inheritance. David is referred to as the firstborn in Psalm 89, but literally he's the lastborn in his family. It's talking about his rank or his position as the king of Israel. Psalm 89, 27 says, the Lord says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And the author of this Psalm is wondering, how can God promise David that he will be the firstborn when these promises have, have not come about. As we come to Revelation, the promises that God made to David are fulfilled in Jesus. David lived a life following God, but he fell short, if you know his story, in many ways. And we know his sons after him fell short in many ways until Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus is the true king of the world because he has lived the perfect life as the faithful witness and he's defeated death through his resurrection. Others have been raised from the dead. You can think about in Jesus' ministry, Lazarus, uh, Jairus' daughter, but eventually they died again. Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the true king over all. Pilate asks at Jesus' trial if he's a king, and Jesus responds that his kingdom is not of this world. And now this is true, but in another sense, Jesus is the true king of heaven, and therefore he's the king over all kings and kingdoms. And I think John is emphasizing here that Jesus' kingship is over all. It's over heaven, earth, angels, demons, kingdoms, and kings. Jesus being the firstborn from the dead is very encouraging because some of the Christians were being put to death in John's day. But even though they were put to death, they will live just as Jesus lives after his death. They will be raised from the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's our story too. If you're trusting in Christ, you will enjoy life forever because Jesus has risen from the dead. I think we can often move quickly from the introductions of the books in the Bible and the letters and uh, move on to the main sections. But I want us to think for a moment about this introduction Think about how the one tr true triune God has brought grace and peace to his people. Think about this God that we've talked about in verse four, the eternal self-existent God is telling his people grace and peace. Just think back on all the instances throughout the Bible where people encounter God. They fall, they oftentimes fall face down, even not even when they approach God, when they see an angel. 
And when they, when they encounter God, they often want to die. And many times God does judge people he comes into contact with. Think of Uzzah when uh, they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and he reaches out and touches the cart and God strikes him dead. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness when they grumble and complain and rebel against God and Moses and the earth opens up and swallows them whole. Think of the flood. Think of Ananias and Sapphira and Acts. This holy and perfect God is not judging here, but he's bringing grace and peace. In all the letters, the order is grace and then peace. God must act first in initiating his love towards people if they are to experience his peace. We must receive his free gift if we're to experience his peace. So what's the free gift of grace that God offers so we won't experience his judgment? Well, look with me at uh, verse five, the second half of verse five. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Think back with me um, to Jesus' conversation with the Jews in John 8. Jesus tells them, anyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. And they can't be free unless the son sets them free. Jesus shows his love for us by freeing us from our sins through his death. We don't deserve to be freed from our sins, but because Jesus loves us, he dies in our place on the cross. Maybe you're here today and you think you're freed from your sins because your parents are Christians or your parents are in ministry or you come to church every week or you're not Muslim or Hindu, you're a pretty good person most of the time, therefore you must be a Christian. Please listen to God's word. You can only be freed from your sins by Jesus dying in your place on the cross. His blood is the only way anyone can be forgiven. Our sin defiles us before God and there's nothing that we can do to erase our guilt before God. If you're trusting in your family background or in anything you do to make you free from your sin, I want to urge you to repent and receive the grace and peace that God offers his people. You can receive this gift today and be free from your sin. What's the purpose? Jesus frees us from our sin. We'll look at verse six together. We see to make us a kingdom of priests to God the father of Jesus. Remember in Exodus 19, when God makes a covenant with Israel, he tells them that they will be a kingdom of priests. Priests had access to God and God would mediate his blessing, the blessing of him to the rest of the people. As God's people, they were God's kingdom who had the one true God as their God and they had fellowship and access to him through the temple and the sacrificial system. Of course, this was temporary for the nation of Israel. And I think as we look at this passage, the understanding that those who are freed from their sin, that that would be all believers or, or the church, are the true kingdom of priests. They are God's people and they have access to God through the work of Jesus. So if you're here today and you're trusting in Christ, you are part of a kingdom of priests. We see the same concept come up again in Revelation 5, 
where John says, for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And Peter picks up on this also in First uh, Peter 1, verse 9, when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So he's not talking to ethnic Jews here. He's talking to Christians, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So let's think for a moment. What is the purpose and God saving us as a people in Rack Church today? All those who are here who've been freed from their sins by Christ's blood, you are part of a kingdom of priests to God. I have a couple points of application about this as, as members of this church. Number one, and I know many of you are doing this and seeking to do this, um, but I think we continually, as we look at the scripture, need to be reminded of these things. Let's seek to mediate the blessing of God to the world by declaring the gospel to those God puts around us. Every relationship that God puts into our lives, we should seek to share the good news of salvation in Christ. We should seek to share it boldly, clearly, lovingly. I hope the foundations class we did earlier this month on evangelism was helpful for many of you. Seek to incorporate and use uh, some of the things you learned in that class with your friends that are unbelievers or family. If you've never shared the gospel and it's something that intimidates you, uh, talk to a, a member of this church that you know is doing this regularly and, and seek to uh, learn from them or talk to one of us as elders and we'd love to, to help you grow in this. Secondly, let's seek to be sharing the gospel together as the church. Now, what do I mean by sharing the gospel together? Notice that Jesus doesn't just die for an individual, he dies for a people. It's plural, kingdom of priests. So we should be seeking to do this together. I know there are many groups in this church that uh, are seeking to do this together, and that's wonderful. And um, one way we can do this is try to involve one another in the relationships that we have with unbelievers. I was just thinking of examples even in this church, and uh, I was thinking of Andre getting to know a friend from uh, the community here, and he's brought many of us into relationship with this guy, and he's become our friend as well. And he's heard the gospel. This guy's heard the gospel from, from many of us many times. And hopefully he's seen the love of Christ in our lives as he's been around our community. Another way to seek to be a kingdom of priests together is even coming together for our uh, once a month prayer meetings. So we can be praying for one another. We can be praying for those we're seeking to share the gospel with. Let's, let's do this. We have... Uh, one coming up this next week, as Josh said in the announcements at 5 p.m. Seek to commit yourselves this coming year to gathering with us as the church to bring our praises and our requests to the Lord. This brings us to our last point, point number two. The eternal triune God will bring ultimate judgment on his people in verses seven to eight. Jesus became human in order to die so that we could be freed from our sins as we discussed in the last point. 
He, of course, didn't stay dead, but he rose again on the third day. Jesus is coming back again, as we see from verse 7 and many other parts in Scripture. We see this aspect of the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. You see this referenced in Daniel 7. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, remember how he loves to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And now this kind of climaxes at Jesus' trial in Mark 14, when the high priest asked Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus' second coming, which in case you're wondering, we are still waiting for, he will come back in power and authority as the rightful king overall. He is the king now, but there are still many who are in rebellion against his rule. When he returns, everyone will be brought to their knees. Those that crucified him will see. But it won't just be those who crucified him, but all people everywhere. The passage that Oliver read earlier from Zechariah speaks of God's people Israel rejecting God and piercing him symbolically by by their resurrection or by their uh, rejection. Amazingly, the passage is fulfilled in Christ being rejected in the same way, but also being pierced physically on the cross. And we are waiting for it to be ultimately fulfilled at the return of Christ when every eye will see him from all the tribes and nations. His return won't be like his first coming that many did not know about. It will be cosmic. How are people responding at Jesus' return? We see they're wailing. They're mourning. They're not happy to see the king return. They're his enemies. They've not submitted to the king. And now they, they, the king is coming back. They're going to pay for their rejection. Revelation 6 verses 15 and 16 says, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in, in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Jesus is this lamb returning. He is the king ruling over all. The judgment that Jesus brings is final. It's eternal. Many I talk to think that hell is temporary. You pay for your sins for some time and then you're released. Brothers and sisters, hell is not temporary. Jesus says it's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is everlasting. Why are these people judged eternally? Well, we see well, as we talked about already, God is perfectly just. He is an eternal, perfect being, and he must judge all sin. That fits with his character. That shows his goodness. So there are only two options for people in the Bible. Either your sin will be paid for by Jesus at the cross, or it's going to be paid by you forever. What about the people who've never heard about Jesus? Well, they will be judged as well for their sin. 
all people deserve to be judged by God forever because all sin. God did not create us as sinners. So all of our sin, whether we realize it or not, is a personal rebellion and offense against God. These facts affirm our point of application that we talked about, about sharing the gospel with our friends because judgment is coming. It's urgent. We need to warn our friends because we love them. We need to warn our family because we love them. Just as when natural disasters are coming, ideally there are warnings sent out. You guys know this last uh, fall or, or summer, there's the the big fire in Hawaii and there wasn't adequate warning sent out and many people died in this um, uh, land fire. Well, every time, even when there are warnings sent out, there's a tsunami or a fire or tornado, many people choose not to heed the warnings and they suffer oftentimes with their lives, the consequences. Well, as a kingdom of priests, we need to send out the warning. And sharing the gospel, we proclaim forgiveness of sins and eternal life through Jesus. And we warn of the consequences of rejection that brings everlasting wrath. So finally, in in closing, John closes this section we're looking at today with how he introduced God at the start. The present, the past, the future, the self-existent God. He makes a couple of additions to who God is when saying he is the alpha and the omega. And we see that throughout Revelation, meaning that he is the beginning and the end. He's not saying that God had a beginning or that he will have an end, but that he is the eternal one. He's ruling over all time from beginning to end. He was in the beginning, Genesis 1, and he'll be at the end of history. He is the almighty God. He has all power and authority. There's no limit with God. John, beginning and closing this section with who God is, gives Christians assurance and confidence that even though they're going through suffering and persecutions, that the eternal, all-powerful God is on the throne ruling for their good. Why would these verses be helpful for the first readers? Well, think about what they were going through. They were being, they were a persecuted minority suffering afflictions and even death from the government, from the community around them. These verses would have been an amazing encouragement to them as they went through suffering. Jesus is reminding them that he has died for them. He's coming back for them. It may seem like evil's winning and that there's no hope, but the everlasting, all-powerful God reigns and he will fully bring in his kingdom at the return of Christ. Those that are persecuting the Christians are the enemies of God and he will judge the wicked and rescue his own people. This today should give us courage and confidence in our triune God as we head into the new year. We don't know what's in store for us. We all are probably looking forward with joy and anticipation for different things in this coming year, maybe dreading other things. Many of us will experience joys and encouragement in this next year, and many of us will experience suffering and pain. For most of us, probably a mixture of both. For those of us who are in Christ, we can go through the joys 
and the sorrows together, knowing that Jesus reigns now and he will come back soon to bring us to himself.